So, we come this morning um, to the last of our... We've had a short sermon series in John's Gospel over Easter, haven't we? And this is the last one, effectively. Um, And we're looking at chapter 21, the first part of chapter 21. And this miracle of the the miraculous catch of fish. Now, it's funny, when I read John's Gospel from the beginning to the end... Chapter 21 almost feels a bit like an addendum. It feels like a bit like an add-on. I'll tell you why. Because when I read the end of chapter 20, I read these words. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It seemed to be like the the closing statement of John's Gospel, that that's the end of chapter 20, and we still have chapter 21 out there. And it, I say, when I, you think of it as a whole, it makes it feel, chapter 21, look a bit like an add-on. Uh, but I'm going to come back to that in, in a while. This chapter 21 captures Jesus' encounter with seven disciples early one morning on the shores of what is referred to in the text as the Sea of Liberius, but that's the same as the the Lake Lake Galilee, effectively. So I'm just going to take us through the text and uh, try and draw some lessons out of it that we can take note of. So afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberius. It happened this way. Simon Peter, as one, Thomas, another, Nathaniel, another, the two sons of Zebedee, who are known as James and John. John is likely to be the author of this uh, Gospel of John. And two others, unnamed. We don't get get their names. So seven of what is now the eleven, if you remember, the twelve are now eleven. So seven of the eleven. And Simon Peter is their de facto leader. He's always named first. He seems to be the, the leader And just looking at Simon Peter, it's quite interesting. I think if we step back a minute, again, looking at the whole Gospel, um, it was seen that Simon Peter has been on a bit of a a journey, all right, going round in a full circle. And he's ended up back on the the shores of Lake Galilee, which is exactly the place that he originally met Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, we have the story of Simon Peter's first encounter with Jesus on that lakeshore. Which is interesting as well, is also after he's just spent a long night trying to catch some fish and failing to do so. That's an interesting echo there. Jesus had commandeered Simon Peter's boat to use it as a platform from which he could speak to the crowds who gathered on the, on the lake shore. And Luke tells us when he'd finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water, let down the nets for a catch, And Simon said, Master, Master, we've been working hard all night and we haven't caught a single thing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done so, Luke says, they caught a large number of fish and their nets began to break. And it is immediately following this first encounter with Jesus that Jesus then calls Simon Peter and the other fishermen to lay down their nets and follow him. And again, we read in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' words, come and follow me, Jesus says to Peter, Simon Peter, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus, who calls fishermen to be fishers of men. 
So three years later, standing once again on that shore, that lake shore, Simon Peter must have remembered those days, they were only three years ago, he might have felt his life was just going round in circles and not going anywhere in particular. So much had happened, but here he is right back in the same place once again. How did he get there? Standing beside the Sea of Galilee. Now Simon Peter is often portrayed in the Gospels as a man of action. Someone who really didn't care much for sitting around waiting for something to happen. He wasn't his nature. Since Easter Sunday, Jesus had already appeared to the disciples twice before, but here they were yet again waiting for him, not knowing whether or when he might show up. And I think this uncertainty, this uh, sort of feeds Simon Peter's frustration. You know, he's not a waiting man. You know, he's fine doing, the th- doing things, but he ain't very good standing around and waiting. So he just wants to get on and pay focus on something that he can actually do. He's a fisherman, so what better thing? Surely he might as well just go fishing, just to do something. At least he could fish, catch fish, or so he thought. I'm going out of fish, Simon Peter tells the others. I'm going. And they said, well, got nothing better to do. We'll come along with you. So they all went out and got into the boat, and they were out there all night, and they caught uh, nothing. Nothing. Jesus in the Gospels clearly has an affinity for fishermen. And although we don't exactly know how many of the disciples were fishermen, it seems quite clear that certainly most of these seven were, went fishing that night. And fishing is a difficult business. It's not a, a soft occupation. It's a tough business. It's a hard life. It's a skill, but it's also something that requires an awful lot of patience. It's an activity where one can seem to do everything right and yet still not come home with any fish for the table. And so for the second time recorded in the scriptures, Simon and his fellow fishermen spend another night in fruitless labour. But then as they're ready to pack up, they're really giving up, there is Jesus standing on the shore asking them really what must have been a very exasperating, irritating, annoying question. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples did not realise but it was him. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No! Can you imagine? You've been out there all night. Haven't you any fish? Their answer is recorded as being curt and short. I think that's sort of saying something about where they they, they were. It's an abrupt no. These men are tired. They're probably hungry. They're probably thirsty. They're frustrated. They've got nothing to show for their labour, despite having poured all their strength into it, all their skill into it. They can't seem to get anything out. I think if it'd been me in the boat, I do like boats, as a number of you know, with that stranger on the shore asking me that question, I might have been pretty short towards him as well. Surely it's a question that makes any fisherman, especially a fisherman who doesn't have any fish, feel pretty inadequate. But then we're surprised again, could Jesus, who remember is not a fisherman himself and probably doesn't even look like a fisherman either, tells them to try once again. This time, 
on the other side of the boat. And when they do so, they, they catch a significant number of fish. In verse 6, throw your net over on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Having worked all night, and having exhausted their own skills and, and strength, why would they bother to follow such advice? They would surely have known that one side of their boat was surely no light more likely to provide a catch than the other. But this said, for some reason, they do what Jesus says. Maybe they follow something in their hearts more than something in their heads. Their reason would have told them this is nonsense. But they responded to this leading and to this word of this stranger. And when they do so, they come up with a jackpot and they, in more ways than one. Yes, they have fish, 153, we're told. But it is also through that irrational act, the act more of the heart, but an act of obedience to this unrecognised man on the shore, that John's eyes are first opened, and he realises who it really is standing there on the shore, but it is Jesus. Now remember, this is the same John, who is the author of this Gospel narrative, John who often refers to himself in a slightly oblique way as the disciple that Jesus loved. And it seems to me that it is through this sense of love for Jesus, rather than his understanding, his knowledge, that he now recognises Jesus and with delight cries out to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, It is the Lord! Simon Peter wraps his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumps into the water. And the other disciples follow in the boat, towing the full net of fish, for they were not far from the shore. I said earlier, Peter, he's a man of action, and we see it once again, don't we? Peter the impetuous. Peter who would rather go fishing than rather just sitting around waiting for Jesus to show up. Peter, who now puts on his outer garment, throws himself into the lake. He's in such a hurry to get to the shore to meet Jesus. He just couldn't wait for the boat to get him there, even though the boat, we're told, is not far from the shore, about 100 metres, 100 yards away. He was driven by compulsion to be with Jesus once again. Even the Jesus, the, the Jesus who, whom he had denied three times. Jesus who he now realises he loves beyond reason. He just could not wait. There's a real sense of urgency, there's a real sense of passion in what Peter does here. Now we don't know what happened when Peter reaches the shore, for the account picks up next when the remaining disciples get there in the boat along with the fish. When they land, they see a fire burning, coals there with some fish on it and some bread already. But Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. And once again, it's Simon Peter, this man of action, who is so keen to obey his Lord's command. We read in verse 11, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. You know, he was there. He, again, you see this man of action. Jesus who had died, Jesus who had risen, 
Jesus now recognised as their Lord and Saviour, the glorified Son of the living God. What does this glorified Son say to them? We have it in verse 12. It's as simple as, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples were told, dared to ask who he was, for they now knew it was the Lord. And that is it, that simple invitation. Come and have breakfast. The risen Christ, the glorious Christ, who even now cares for them, body and soul. Jesus, who knew their physical, who knew their spiritual needs, and sought to provide for them with the bread and the fish, and most importantly, his faithful, personal presence. Come and have breakfast, he says. And it's not self-service. It's not go and help yourself. It's come and have breakfast. We are being served by the Lord himself. And in verse 13 we read, Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. Jesus showing the servant heart of God towards each one of them. That sense of care and love and compassion. This is the same Son of Man who said he did not come to be served but to serve. But he continues here as a risen Christ to embody this example, to show an example, walking his talk and showing those who wish to follow him how they should walk too. Near the beginning of the Gospel, John's Gospel, John wrote these words about Jesus. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. To me, those words seem to take on a whole new perspective when I read this account now at the end of the Gospel. This is the same Jesus that John is describing. The Jesus he describes as the glorious incarnation in chapter 1 is the same Jesus who now turns to be weary, tired men who can't seem to catch a fish amongst them and said to them, come, come and have breakfast. The same Christ. So I'm going to try something now and we'll see how how helpful this is or not. Listening to me, or hopefully listening to that word in the spirit, what do you think you can take and apply? What do you think would say a lesson, something you could take out of that, and that would be a useful thing to, to remember in the coming week? Putting you on the spot. <clears throat> Say again. The disciples of the boat had faith. They'd been out all night, caught nothing. Somebody on the other side said, gosh, you're on the other side. I mean, I would think, did you not hear what I just said? We, we've been out all night. Yeah. Yeah, that, so, so how is throwing the net on the other side? You know, yeah, so they were willing to act in faith, although their heads would have told them oh, it was a lot of nonsense. Yes, thank you. 
Second? Yeah, the God who provides. <clears throat> he doesn't just provide for us when we've done well. He doesn't say, well done, Martin. Yeah, have a, have a Kit Kat. <clears throat> Often quite the reverse, isn't it? You know, when you're tired and exhausted, you know, it's God's compassion we see often as God seeks to provide for us, you know, by, you know through the spirit and, and through the world of which we're part, you know. One more? Do life with Jesus. Say do life with Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, 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 that's right. Life without Jesus is, is fruitless in one sense, and in an eternal sense it's a fruitless pastime. You know, you can do all sorts of useful things, and they're helpful and socially helpful. I'm not, I'm not belittling them. But life for us is life we do with Christ, life we do with Jesus. And, it's, and keeping hold of that is an important point. So I'm just going to see, I've got a few listed down here, just depending on whether anybody spoke at all, but thank you for the three of you who contributed. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a thing about, you know, we have all the human strength and human skills, but they don't really mean an awful lot from a fruitful point of view until we actually put, combine those with faith and we'll put our faith in Jesus. You know, we, we so easily, I do all the time, rely on what I know I can do, but that isn't always the way to go. And I think we see in the text that Jesus, you know, the Lord cares for us, body and soul. You know, our lives are faith. The amazing thing about incarnation, it reminds us that, you know, he became flesh. You know, for God doesn't just care for our spirits. You know, he cares for us, body and soul. And I think it's important to recognise as we then seek to care for others. It's very easy for church communities to get over-spiritualised and, and do, you know, wonderful spiritual things. But forget you know, some basics. But I think, you know, Jesus' example is body and soul. Something else you could look at is, is Jesus being present even when we don't recognise him. Yeah, yeah, and that is the case. You know, we believe the Lord is there. The Lord is sovereign, right? It's only us who are blind, right? And we, you know... Um, just thinking of Simon Peter, particularly, and he's, he's going around in circles and feeling like he's going nowhere. Even when we fail Jesus, Jesus' love for us remains true. You know, he doesn't sort of give to us or measure us out based on our, our good deeds or anything like that. And the last one, I suppose, I would just try and draw, draw out, thank you, Freddie, is sometimes we can see Jesus much more clearly, oh dear, with our hearts than our heads. We need both of them, by the way. We've given them both of them and created with both of them. But, but often we can see the Lord more clearly. And I think John initially saw the Lord on that lakeshore first with his heart rather than his head. So just to remind us. So just thinking of John's Gospel, last, just closing up on this, I just think it's amazing. I, I at the start said, you know, this is an addendum. I don't think this is an addendum for a minute. All right? You know, this gospel that starts with those wonderful words in John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made, but has been made, in him was life, and that life is the light of men, and on it goes, obviously. <clears throat> it's amazing, John trying to <clears throat> find words to describe what it means to describe God incarnate. That's what John's struggling with, <clears throat> and language doesn't do it. 
but it tr we try. All right? I think John closes his gospel with God incarnate. The God who says, come and have breakfast, and serves us. It's the same, same God. And I just think that's why it's not an addendum. In a sense, it, it reveals something of God in Christ, which is far, far more profound. So John knew what he said when he wrote down, the word has become flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Amen.